This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you an extra special bonus episode on a bank holiday Monday. It's a guest episode from Manvin Rana and the Stories of Our Times team. With millions of voters going to the polls in local elections across England this week, she's been looking at what's at stake with Times Red Box reporter Lara Spirit and the veteran pollster Peter Kellner. I'll be back tomorrow with a normal episode of the podcast. But in the meantime, here it is. These elections really, really matter and we've got to go out and we've got to win them. I'm a Conservative, I want to cut your taxes. Of course I do, right? That's what I want to deliver. I wish I could do that tomorrow, quite frankly. The result will be the most significant test of public opinion before Rishi Sunak faces Keir Starmer at a general election. In the run-up to the vote, both are going on a particular kind of attack. He attended, he attended 21 sentencing council meetings that water down punishments. That's why they call him Sir Softy. Soft on crime, soft on criminals. Mr Speaker, I've prosecuted thousands upon thousands of sex offenders. He's just shown... For both parties, their messaging is designed to appeal to a particular kind of voter. Here, Starmer needs to appeal to a Stevenage woman, apparently. The Stevenage woman who's like an archetypal hypothetical voter to reach Downing Street, that's what he's been told. The critical ones are Stevenage woman and Workington man. Behind the scenes, politicians and pollsters are desperately trying to work out who exactly they need to win over and how they can do it without alienating their core supporters. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, from Workington Man to Stevenage Woman, the swing voters who'll decide the next election.
Hi, I'm Lara Spirit and I'm The Times' Red Box reporter. Lara, what are we expecting from the local elections that are coming up? How are the parties trying to set expectations for what might happen with the results? I think the key thing to remember about these local elections is that they are probably the last significant electoral test that we'll see for both of the parties before the general election. There has been a huge amount of expectation management from both sides to try and set the stool for what would either be a success or a failure. The Tory party chairman, I think, summed up the Tories' efforts at expectation management, Greg Hans, when he said... Um, the independent expectations are that the Conservatives will lose more than a 1,000 seats mm-hmm. and that Labour need to make big gains. That is what the expectation is. A 1,000 seats. Now, that's a staggering number of seats. You're, you're predicting a 1,000-seat loss, or are you just trying to uh, massage our expectations here? Uh, that is what the independent experts, uh, Professor Rallings and Thrall... And I think the hope in CCHQ is that when, as will be likely, that number is smaller, that therefore they can claim the loss is not quite so great. Almost a victory. (laughs) Could have been worse. Almost a victory. While the Tories will want to prove that they haven't lost as many seats as they might have done, for Labour, is this time to show that they really are as far ahead in the polls as recent reports have shown? I think there's definitely a large amount of pressure on Labour to show that this mighty lead that we see reported very regularly for Keir Starmer, albeit slightly slimmer now around the 15-point margin than it has perhaps been in recent months, that that really comes through in the elections. We hear quite a bit from Tory sources who are trying to defend Rishi Sunak that when you see that that strong Labour lead, it's actually a bit more soft and voters might say that they're leaning towards Labour, but actually they haven't fully made up their minds. So for Keir Starmer, these local elections are a chance to prove that that poll lead is a robust one that can be translated into election results. And Laura, this is also going to be the first election we'll see with the new regulations on how we vote, on the need for photo ID. How much of an impact do we think that's going to have on the results? So I think the polling that we've seen shows that there are quite a significant number, perhaps a quarter of people who don't know that you'll be needing to bring along a photo ID when you come to vote. The way we vote is changing. You need to bring ID on the 4th of May. Don't have ID? Apply for a voter ID for free. Visit electoralcommission.org.uk. That's still in spite of, you know, voter awareness campaigns around these new requirements. There'll be a lot of attention on the possible impacts on turnout that this could have, and particularly on whether or not there are specific groups of voters, specific age demographics or other demographics that are seen to turn out less as a particular result of these photo ID changes. BBC analysis of Electoral Commission data calculates that almost 2 million people across the UK don't currently have the correct ID to vote. And Laura, every time there's an election, the parties are always trying to figure out who they should be targeting. Just give us a sense, in these local elections in England, I mean, who do you think the Tories are particularly focusing on? So it's very interesting because we're told that the Tories are focusing predominantly in places like the Midlands and the North, the so-called Red Wall. But actually, I think that Rishi Sunet will be equally, if not more, worried about what could happen in the so-called Blue Wall, those more affluent southern-facing seats, those with MPs such as Michael Gove, Dominic Raab and Jeremy Hunt where some of the traditional Tory voters in those seats might be turned off by the party. Now, Ed Davey, the Liberal Democrat leader, makes no secret of his hope of making gains in this area. So that would be pretty fascinating to watch. 
And what about Labour? I mean, even though they're ahead in the polls, they seem to be having a bit of an internal battle about who it is that they should be really targeting in the election. Tell me a bit about their, their current fascination for Stevenage woman. Who is she and what does she believe? So it's very interesting and I think speaks to the proclivity that quite a lot of people inside politics have for these so-called voter archetypes, the way that we're able to profile particular voters that different politicians should be focusing on. The Essex Man is the profile often ascribed to Margaret Thatcher. The idea was that Thatcher was able to reach out to some of those more traditional Labour voters through some mm. policy offers such as the sale of council housing stock at subsidised prices, for example, bringing over people with that kind of profile of the Essex Man. You know, under Tony Blair, it was the Mondeo Man. Tony Blair first mentioning that in 1996. Tony Blair called his new demographic for new Labour Mondeo Man because he'd met a bloke in Nottingham, an electrician, with ironically a Ford Sierra, but they had to kind of update it. I was canvassing in the Midlands on an ordinary suburban estate. I met a man polishing his Ford Sierra, self-employed electrician. Dad always voted Labour. He used to vote Labour, he said, but he bought his own home He'd set up his own business, he was doing quite nicely. So he said, I've become a Tory. And in that moment, the basis of our failure, the reason why a whole generation has grown up under the Tories, became plain to me. But I think something that Blair wanted from the Mondeo man was to use it to articulate a particular vision about what he wanted the Labour Party to stand for. It wasn't about saying we are going out and specifically trying to persuade the Mondeo man to vote for us. It was just as much about saying the Mondeo man has a place in the Labour Party because we are a party of aspiration and we are a party that is now different from the iterations of the Labour Party that have come before us. And then after Mondeo man came Worcester Woman. <laughs> I assume by then they were just going for alliteration as much as anything. But just just remind us of who she was. So, yeah, in 1997, we had the, the Worcester woman. She was a, a woman around her 30s from a kind of smaller city. She was seen as a key swing voter in that election. And kind of since we've had just this abundance of different terms given to potentially valuable voters. And I think part of that comes from America, where we've seen so-called soccer moms and NASCAR dads. But I do think it also just speaks to the ways that we are trying to make sense of politics. We're very fond of using these terms. And I think when explained well, they can go some way to making politics feel both more interesting, but also for it to make more sense. And it's gone on and on. We had the Pebble Dash people, the Cardi Breezer generation. I mean, it even sort of turns into a bit of a joke with the thick of it, who I think came up with the quiet bat people. <laughs> Iron people, spider people. They're just regular things. citizens, but they have this that one people. special quality that makes them like Batman, or bat, bat people. people. Um, the quiet bat people. Quiet bat people. We had the work, so-called Workington man in the last election. 20,488. <clears throat> well, there we have it. Uh, Workington tumbling. Uh, as that was seen as a kind of pivotal profile that spoke to the success of the Conservative Party in 2019. Election, a Conservative gain from Labour. They and in the Labour Party of late, there's been a debate about whether or not they should be focusing on someone called the Stevenage woman. And the profile of the Stevenage woman is that she is a suburban mother, perhaps in her early 40s. 
that she's disillusioned with politics and possibly struggling with the cost of living and that she's pragmatically slightly socially conservative and also slightly economically liberal. So she's not a dogmatic voter. She's actually the biggest voting demographic that there is supposedly. And the row in the party goes, you know, is it effective or useful to profile people in these ways? But nonetheless, the group called Labour Together, a campaigning organisation with close links to Keir Starmer, has argued that this is a very useful way of looking at politics and actually that to look at the way of tailoring politics towards this profile would be very instructive. And part of that actually is because of the Labour lead being so convincing that the so-called Workington man that we saw in the last election, uh, you know, they voted for Boris Johnson in 2019. They've already in polling gone back to the Labour Party. So those are the kind of more traditional Labour voters. They're more socially conservative and they voted Brexit. But should the Labour Party want to win a majority, the group that have come up with this profile, Labour Together, argue they will need to win the Stevenage woman as well. It's not enough to simply have won that previous group. You need this Stevenage woman too. And that's where the debate and the discussion is in Labour at the moment. And I think the local elections are very interesting because the Labour Party have made no secret of the fact that they are treating some of their messaging as a dry run for the general election. And how are they going about targeting these groups? I mean, is it sort of just through policy? Is it about the way they're advertising? And should we assume in that case that, you know, these attack ads we've seen coming out from Labour, are they what they think Stevenage woman would approve of? Now it's the Labour Party accused of going too far, with a tweet that reads, Do you think adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison? Rishi Sunak doesn't. Outrage ensued, but then came this, more of the same, Labour doubling down. Well, we don't know that Sir Keir Starmer has accepted fully this diagnosis that the Stevenage woman should be the abiding and leading concern of the party going into the next election. We merely know that he's been told, including by people that he trusts, that this is a uh, very important group. So it's not necessarily clear. I think it's worth saying that this will actually be the key strategy or group going into the next election or that they will choose to see politics in this way. But I think the attack ads speak to a kind of wider question around what the Labour Party are hoping to achieve when they reach out to voters. And for the Tories, how are they going about making their message heard to people in in the North and in the Midlands? I mean, is this sort of part of their recent raft of policies, for example? Are they particularly focusing on on that audience. You know, we keep hearing about small boats, for example. Is all of that, again, part of their sort of uh, electoral campaign? The small boats, of course, the slogan Stop the Boats, which, you know, is one of Rishi Sunak's touted five priorities that we heard at the very beginning of the year. Five promises. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting lists and stop the boats. And of course, the most recent illegal migration bill. We've introduced tough new measures today to help us stop the boats. The new illegal migration bill means... That That kind of detain and deport agenda that Number 10 are hoping to champion. You will be detained and then you will be swiftly removed to your own country if that's safe. Or if it isn't, then a safe third country alternative like Rwanda. Much of their personal political credibility on this idea that they are competent leaders. And if Rishi Sunak is not able to, in his words, stop the boats, then I think what the Labour Party will be able to make of of that failure to do something on a key pledge will be one of the more interesting things to watch. And Laura, you know, just the person to try and make sense of, you know, exactly what the parties need to do at the next election, who they need to target and how they need to go about it. And that's your friend Peter. Tell us a bit about him. 
Yeah, so Peter Kellner has been a friend of mine for a long time and I've long enjoyed going for walks and discussing politics with him. He is, of course, the former president of the polling company YouGov and also a journalist and has been one of the most brilliant minds on polling uh, of my lifetime. So he thinks that we should think about two people that we haven't spoken about in our list so far called Jenny and Joe. So, who are Jenny and Joe? Coming up, Lara takes the veteran pollster Peter Kellner for a little walk to find out. That's in just a moment. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So it's a rainy, or probably rather fair to say it's a drizzly Friday morning. And Peter, we're on one of our regular Friday morning walks. Do you want to just introduce yourself to listeners? I'm Peter Kellner. I've been following politics, God help me, for half a century. I was a journalist for 30 years, more recently chairman and president of YouGov till I retired uh, seven years ago. Peter's first career in newspapers started on the puzzle pages of the Sunday Times when he was just 14 years old. The Sunday Times started doing a weekly brain tease and they said, if any of you would like to submit a puzzle, we publish it, so you get £10. It was, I think, in March 61, my first contribution to the Times newspaper. It was the first reader's puzzle that the Sunday Times printed. Eight years later, he joined the Sunday Times staff as a reporter. We met up to talk about a different kind of brain teaser, public opinion and the polls. There's so much more data that's available than when I started out 50 years ago. It's often the best way to look at numbers is to spend half an hour, an hour or whatever looking at it and then put a damp towel around your head, go for a walk and think, now what's this all about? There's no better way to get something right in my experience than to have somebody kick the tyres of the argument and these walks help me do that. Usually when we go on these walks, we talk a lot about polling and more or less everything I understand from polling, I feel I've learnt from you. But today we're talking about specifically voter archetypes. Well, the start of this, you had Mondeo Man, you had Worcester Woman. The real point 
of all this stuff originally was for party leaders, party strategists, to escape their safety zone of their loyalists, the middle-class conservative voters in the suburbs and shires, the working-class Labour voters in the industrial towns and cities. And up to around the 1970s, early 80s, that was very much the way British politics divided. But the people who decided elections was that sliver, increasingly large sliver, in between, who weren't working-class or middle-class archetypes. And what you were getting was the party strategists who understood this were saying to their political masters, look, these are the people in the middle, socially and politically in the middle of Britain, who are the ones that decide whether you narrowly lose or narrowly win an election. So they invented various descriptions of these people and they were broadly right because what you were getting by the 1980s 1990s as more and more people owned their own home had cars they were employees they were as it were in marxist terms still workers but in social and cultural and economic terms they were not part of the oppressed masses of which marx had written 150 years earlier and it was these people that the parties needed to concentrate on in recent weeks, we've seen quite a lot of reporting about a new profile, the Stevenage woman. I'm wondering what your thoughts on that particular profile are. And you have your own, <laughs> your own archetype as well for who you think Starmer might be well placed. Oh, sorry, there's a dog. We might well place to uh, to listen to it in the next election. Well, Stevenage woman, spot on in one specific way, which is that Stevenage is a seat that Labour won in 1997 in the Blair landslide and lost in 2010 when Labour lost power nationally. It's the kind of seats that Labour must win to form a government. It's one that Labour needs to win, not just if it's to close the gap on the Tories, but to overtake the Conservatives. However, I think below the surface, something else is going on, because these archetypes for 30 or 40 years implied, I think, correctly, there was sort of one essential central kind of voter in terms of their politics, in terms of their social and economic position. And they were, as they socially in the middle, politically in the middle, they were the targets. But now, principally because of Brexit, there are two kinds of voter who are going to determine the outcome of the next election, and they are very different. And I call them Jenny and Joe. Now, Jenny, imagine a graduate in her late 20s, early 30s, embarking on a professional career, starting to progress up the career ladder, socially liberal, strongly pro-European, egalitarian, wants the state to play a big role, either beginning or, or thinking of having a family, therefore wants good schools, good hospitals, good public services. So that's one type of voter. The other I call Joe. Late 50s, left school at 16, been a manual worker all his life, heading for retirement. Socially much more conservative, voted for Brexit, has been Labour most of his life but in the last few years feel that Labour is out of touch and this came to a head with the issues, the linked issues of Europe and immigration. My proposition is that Labour must find a way to attract both Jenny and Joe despite the fact they are so different from each other. So it's not one profile, it's not, right? It's two. It's not one. If they attract Joe, but in a way which puts off Jenny, then they'll win a fair number of Red Wall seats, but they won't capture a number of the more prosperous seats in other parts of England, Scotland and Wales. So what does it mean for actually being able to target both of them? What are the particular policy platforms that you might pick if you're going to win them both over without alienating one or the other? Well, you start off with the things where Jenny and Joe 
are not dissimilar. So the need for decent schools, decent hospitals, pensions, welfare benefits. Where they are different is what I might call the cultural issues to do with national identity, Europe, immigration. My proposition, and this is one I find that a number of Labour MPs think is absolutely right, and others think is absolutely wrong, is that there is a way to do this, and this is that you fight what I call the culture issues through economics and not through cultural wars. Uh, let me explain what I mean. Take Europe. I've done polling which shows that a lot of Leave voters, not a majority, but a very substantial minority, are perfectly happy with the idea of European workers coming to work in Britain without any constraint. What they're against are people coming to Britain to, quote, scrounge, unquote, to live off our welfare system, which, in fact, there have never been very many, but people think there are lots of them. And equally, if you ask people, if, if it helps Britain's economy, should it sign up to European standards on things like the you know, workers' rights, the environment, product standards, food safety, and so on, mostly voters are perfectly happy to give up, if you like, that bit of sovereignty if that's going to mean better jobs, better pay, more prosperity. So I think Labour could be much more courageous in arguing on these culture issues if it fights them as economic and social causes, not as a cultural war issue. And to play devil's advocate of some of those Labour MPs who have told you that they don't think it's a good idea, they might say that that sounds well and good to those voters, but actually it's a very easily uh, operationalised political attack line from the Conservatives on Europe if you do end up looking like you're slightly softer or more pro-integration for example, and that they're petrified of going down that road. And also that on the former point that they are united around public services, is that not the case for most people? Because one of the interesting things about the Stevenage women demographic to me was that the report authors themselves say that it's supposedly the largest demographic, to which you might just say, what's the point of having these groups if the things that they're advocating are pretty popular with most people anyway? Who would argue against strong public services, for example? Well, I refer the honourable lady to the answer I gave some moments (laughs) ago, which is that these archetypes are largely there to try and get the politicians to think outside their comfort zone. But the criticism I find from the Labour people who don't like my Jenny and Joe thesis, who say, we've got to get Joe, what they're saying to me is, Jenny will end up voting for Labour anyway where it matters in the swing seats. And I'm sure many of them will in order to get rid of the Conservatives. But it doesn't take many Jennies in any marginal seat to say, you know what? I'll vote Lib Dem or I'll vote Green or I'll stay at home because Labour doesn't, as it were, ring my bell. It's now raining quite heavily. Um, I still find it maybe slightly hard to imagine what exactly a platform Keir Starmer would stand on if he's going to win a majority via winning Jenny and Joe, right? Yeah, let's put some big numbers to this. Sonor with Tony Blair winning his landslide in 1997. Now, what were the votes behind that? It was a 13-1-3% lead, 44% Labour, 31% Conservative across Great Britain. If you repeated that now, 44-31, Labour would just, only just, have an overall majority. It would not be a landslide. Now, there are two things which could make Labour's life a lot easier. The first is tactical voting. If anti-Tories do this time what they didn't do last time in 2019 and Lib Dem supporters vote Labour in Tory Labour marginals and Labour supporters vote Lib Dem where the Lib Dems are the challenging party to the Tories, that could 
is Labour's task. And if the SNP collapses in Scotland and Labour, which currently has only one member of Parliament in Scotland, ends up with on current trends maybe 15, but if they go further, they get to 20 or 25, that of course makes life easier. But even with those two factors, Scotland and tactical voting, Labour probably needs at least leading the popular vote of six to eight points to have any form of majority and 10 points to have a substantial majority that's safe for five years. So when th- I've been thinking a bit about Jenny and Joe recently and when you think about them in line with, say, the Labour attack ads recently that Keir Starmer has said he doesn't apologise for and that he stands by every word of it, they seem a little bit more tailored to the Joe, I think you could say, mm. rather than the Jenny. And they do make you think that even if you want to fight the election on turning culture war issues into the economy, there are particular policies, whether you like it or not as Keir Starmer, Mm. that will just be salient in the next election Mm. for voters. And how do you get around that? Yeah, these Labour attack ads, they've taken it straight out of the Dominic Cummings playbook when he, in the Brexit referendum, had, I think it was probably a one single bus plastered on the side with 350 million for the NHS under, under Brexit. But by the end, everybody had seen that image, and not least because people who attacked the figures would say, this is awful. And Cummings was perfectly happy for it to be attacked because the more it was attacked, the more people talked about it. And even if voters came away thinking it may not be 350 million, as long as they came away thinking there will be some money from Brexit for the NHS, Cummings had won that tactical argument. And I think we're seeing that now. They may, you know, they may say it's a bit unfair to say Sunak is personally soft on crime, but the Tory record hasn't been very good. And as long as Labour has succeeded in getting that message across, job done. Whatever one's moral views about it. And you're right, it's, it's a message which is more directed at Joe than Jenny, but at least it's a message that Jenny won't reject. That's interesting, but in the kind of Jenny description that you gave, she's kind of late mm. 20s, she's mm. pro-European, mm. she's well, maybe a young professional woman, mm. she's getting ahead in her career, she's deeply egalitarian mm. in her values. Is there not a kind of value sense in which she may not like the way that these are being phrased? And therefore, even if she cares about crime, she might be listening to people Mm. like John McDonnell, of course, uh, former shadow chancellor for Labour, saying that, you know, the Labour Party should be better Mm. than this. And, that you know, in a kind of just operative sense, it's a bad look. You may be right. I mean, this is a hypothesis. And Lara, I wish I was still a pollster and you were a client, especially a client (laughs) with money. Because this is something absolutely one could research. And I don't know whether Labour, uh, as it were, asked for our pulses that particular question. But uh, you know, a lot of these questions, including, indeed, my supposition, that the, these attack ads will have an impact on Joe and won't be disliked by Jenny, that is my supposition. You know, I've got years of looking at data, but it's still only a supposition. Mm. Those younger professional voters, the Jennies, if you like, who've not grown up, in strong Labour households who don't have an existing tribal history of supporting Labour and even though they want to get rid of the Tories, one cannot assume that they will come to Labour simply to defeat the Tories locally. Some will, but not all will. Either way, it's a risk. But hey, you know, fighting the election, you're taking decisions, most of which have some degree of risk attached. Nothing new there. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Times Redbox reporter Lara Spirit, and her guest, the great Peter Kellner. 
pollster and secret puzzles fiend. For more of our political coverage, you can sign up for the Times Red Box morning email or catch Matt Chorley's show on Times Radio every Monday to Friday from 10 till 1. And if you're wondering whether there are elections in your area or what sort of photo ID you'll need to vote on May the 4th, we've put some helpful links in the description for this episode. The producers today were James Shield and Priyanka Delardia. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.